Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, October 28th. We begin with a discussion surrounding our minimum wage here in the province of Alberta, specifically whether or not it can be defined as a livable wage. We speak with Megan Reed from Vibrant Communities Calgary for her thoughts. Next, we continue the conversation with the Fraser Institute. We're joined by senior fellow Ben Eisen, who shares with us details on a new study by the Institute, which indicates that a higher minimum wage wouldn't provide the support for those who truly need it. Then we look at the concept of a hybrid work model, where employees split their time between working at the office and working at home, an idea that's really caught the attention of so many Alberta workers during this pandemic. We dig into the results of a new study on the topic produced by Cisco Canada and Angus Reid. And finally, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. We hear the very personal story of Calgarian Joelle Marr, breast cancer survivor and advocate. What would be the impact of raising the minimum wage on poverty levels in Calgary? And what does a livable wage look like? Joining us to help answer some questions, we're joined this morning by Megan Reed, Executive Director of Vibrant Communities Calgary. Good morning to you, Megan. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Okay, according to a study from the Fraser Institute, 93% of Albertans working for minimum wage do not live in a low-income household. So what support can be provided to low-income households? And and what do we need to do moving forward in terms of people being able to survive on the money they're making? It's a great question. So minimum wage is one input um, into a whole complement that we would look at for a family and a household of um, of earners. What we do know is that we have, um, coming into the pandemic, for example, 189,000 Calgarians who live below the poverty line. Um, when we talk about things like minimum wage, we actually like to, to focus the conversation on a living wage, um, which for 2021 uh, has just been calculated at $18.60 an hour. And... Well, you can be a minimum wage employer, so paying that $15 floor, there is sort of a gap when we talk about minimum wage, um, who's making minimum wage and who's not, between that $15 and 1816 an hour, that doesn't necessarily accommodate for what it costs to live in our city. So when we talk about a living wage, it, that is um, a proxy for what it actually costs to live um, a decent life in the city of Calgary. You, you say it's, it's not quite enough. It's not there. What are we looking at? Can we can we put an exact dollar figure on what we should be seeing to to say, okay, this is going to cover off all the bases, Megan? Mm-hmm. So we do, and that number is um, eighteen dollars and sixty cents an hour, and that would include uh, food, clothing, and footwear, shelter, transportation, bank fees, internet, childcare, health premiums. Um, and other household costs and contingency expenses. And that is um, a number that is calculated with a lot of input nationwide um, for each municipality and province across the country to to try to underscore that the actual cost of living and not just surviving and having to make um, decisions between keeping your lights on and paying your rent or paying your mortgage is really important. So that $18.60 an hour is what we say is a 
is a living wage. And that's why we would encourage employers to embrace um, that living wage as a principle in their business. I know it can be a tough discussion because some business owners are probably thinking, well, I can't afford that. It's just not even possible to boost it to 1860. And then we have a texter, Cassie said she pays her employees 2250 an hour because minimum wage gets minimum wage results. So paying my staff enough that they can live a meaningful life. It's how, how do you kind of balance those two things though? I, I first of all, look at it with um, a lot of compassion for the business community. Um, businesses have faced huge and unprecedented challenges in the pandemic um, because of restrictions. Um, and, you know, I think for a lot of business who might be under that, that living wage number, there is a path to get there. However, business is a part of a thriving community. Um, and we know that the majority of people that live in low income actually work. So sometimes it's a misunderstanding or a misconception that people living in low income don't work. Um, and so businesses, we would encourage them um, to thrive and to strive for that living wage number. Very interesting discussion mm-hmm. and uh, timely. I know that's a, it's a tough time for all those folks, some, some out of work, but uh, those in jobs uh, want to be paid for what they do and be able to put food on the table. So we appreciate the discussion, Megan. Great. Thank you so much. We're continuing the discussion around minimum wage in the province of Alberta. And according to a new study from the Fraser Institute, the minimum wage earners here in Alberta do not live in low-income households. So how would raising minimum wage impact households across our province? Joining us to explain the finding of this study is Ben Eisen, Senior Fellow at the Fraser Institute. Good morning to you, Ben. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Okay, so what are some of the key findings from this Fraser Institute study on low-income households and minimum wage? Can you break down a little bit of the most important information for us? Absolutely. So what we did in our study is we looked at minimum wage earners. So we took a, took a look at all the minimum wage workers in Alberta and in Canada and asked ourselves, what are the characteristics of these people? Um, who are they uh, and what do we know about them? And we found some pretty remarkable things. We found that the number that living in low-income households, the number of people earning the minimum wage who are actually living in low-income households, is very low. Uh, in Alberta, it's about 6.6%. Uh, and the number that are young people, uh, teenagers are very young adults, 15 to 24, that's 46.4%. So what we found is the vast majority are actually young people living with their parents, uh, not in low-income households. They're secondary earners in middle- or higher-income households, uh, but the number that's actually living in poverty or below the low-income cutoff line is very low. So obviously, Ben, our, our number one aim is to help those folks who are maybe the primary breadwinners within a home or a couple that are uh, you know, trying to put food on the table, scratching by, trying to make ends meet. What is the answer then? Because as we mentioned, if we're, if we're raising it, then the, you know, uh, little Johnny, who's not so little anymore, 16 years old, doesn't have bills to pay, would be making the same when you bump up those wages even further. Yeah, if we're trying to fight poverty, which is often explained as the goal of raising the minimum wage, for all the reasons that we're talking about, uh, this is not going to work very much. This is not going to do very much to lift people out of poverty just because most people uh, earning the minimum wage already aren't in poverty. Mm-hmm. So what, what are the answers? Well, they're much more targeted assistance. Is money going directly to low-income households? We have, uh, we have benefits like the Canada Workers Benefit, which is a top-up on wages for lower-income people. Uh, so that's a pro-work uh, and, uh, and, and much more uh, well-directed subsidy because it goes just directly to low-income households. Uh, but if we're trying to fight poverty, which of, of course we should, we all don't want 
uh, people living in poverty, uh, then it's a very inefficient way to do it, raising the minimum wage. Uh, because as, as I said, the vast majority of minimum wage workers aren't poor. So if you're trying to help poor people, uh, that's not going to do the trick. What about, as a texter suggested, more, better uh, tax breaks as opposed to lifting the minimum wage, which then in turn can technically harm the business owner? That's a fantastic question. It's a fantastic uh, and it's a better solution uh, than the minimum wage is a way of fighting poverty. So we talked about, uh, I briefly mentioned the Canada's workers' benefits. So that is a way of clawing back tax uh, taxes on lower-income people. If we reduce taxes... Um, we can do a lot. Uh, the face, facing low-income people, we can help lift more of them out of poverty. Uh, that includes ideas like uh, permitting refundable tax credits, which means uh, that you can get tax credits if you're a low-income person that actually drives your, your income tax level to below zero. So you can get a subsidy uh, to help you uh, and, and effectively eliminate your income tax rate altogether. That's a more effective way to help low-income families if that's directed uh, at those families. So uh, just about any pr- program, the one you just said about ta- rolling, lowering taxes is a terrific idea. Uh, but what we need to be doing is focusing on how can we help low-income households uh, rather than low-wage low earners oh. because most low-wage earners do not live in low-income households. So it's so important to separate those two things. Yeah, and I think they do get lumped in quite frequently. I'm wondering, Ben, that you know this is a Calgary and Alberta issue, but you folks that look nationwide, uh, I'm wondering, mm-hmm. looking beyond the borders of Canada, can we look at any examples from other countries who, who have this correct and have this right and it's workable for those folks that are having a hard time making ends meet? Yeah, we, we can learn things from other jurisdictions, and we should learn things from other jurisdictions, um, especially ones that look like Canada in terms of, average wages and things of that of that nature. Uh, but with that said, we also have to look most closely at Canadian research because the thing about the minimum wage, like a lot of other policies, is its effects are very context-specific. By that, I mean that what the characteristics of the economy are where we're talking about the minimum wage determine how big its effect is. So we, if we look at the evidence, let's say, from the United States 15 or 20 years ago, that doesn't give us, just for example, that doesn't tell us very much about what a minimum wage increase today uh, in Canada would be. So, yes, we should look elsewhere. Uh, yes, we can learn elsewhere from uh, how much the minimum wage has an effect based on how high it is relative to median income uh, and things of that nature. But the, the key is, uh, and the best way for us to understand these issues better, is Canadian research. Uh, so that's what we should weight the most heavily, uh, simply because that tells us about the circumstances here uh, and the effect of minimum wage increases is quite different from place to place. Important discussion, Ben. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Ben Eisen, Senior Fellow at the Fraser Institute. Very interesting. You know, very interesting. Those are numbers that have been compiled that those minimum wage earners are generally living with other relatives, living at home. Mm-hmm. Or perhaps the, the teenagers are very young adults. And, and I do, I love what that texter said, because as if I, you know, own a small deli, for example, and have seven employees and I have to bump these wages up. That versus, can crush a business, yeah, right? Versus the government clawing back more. And if it's, if you're making that, you know, $15 an hour and you're actually making 15 are pretty darn close, mm-hmm. that's better than them taking, 
You know, you're making coming home with 11 bucks an hour or something. Here's the text. Uh, we don't have an income problem. We have an overtax problem for low-income people, and higher mm. wages only make the problem worse. With higher minimum wage, I won't be able to hire that $15 yeah. an hour kid, but forced to hire someone with more experience for more money. So it is, it's a, it's a, a great discussion, and, and maybe there are better things to be done. We've heard from so many small businesses in this city particularly. They just can't sustain bumping up minimum wage the $15 is difficult but bumping it up to that 1860 that we heard earlier as a you know a, p- yeah. a proper living wage that's just almost impossible for for so many businesses and it's so interesting because this is it's such a weird time because we've been talking about that minimum wage for quite a while and now the influence of the pandemic in our first business store sure. we talked about Starbucks bringing it up and it's going to be a 6 to 10% increase for a lot of these folks in January at Starbucks and they'll be over 18 bucks mm. some of them making almost $21 an hour they have to out of necessity because they're having a hard time getting employees. So to a certain extent, the market will dictate it. But in the end, if you're not fortunate to have one of those jobs, what can be done? Maybe you have a solution. We talked about that taxation. You can always send us a text at 403-974-8255. And a new study from Cisco and the Angus Reed Institute found 77% of Albertans feel hours and flexibility in work location will influence whether or not they stay at their current job. With more on the findings of the study, we're joined this morning by the president of Cisco Canada, Shannon Leiniger. Good morning, Shannon. Good morning. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Let's talk a little bit about the study itself. A couple of the, the key findings in terms of the importance of a hybrid workplace. What did you find from folks? Well, you know, I think it's a really important time in Canada right now. We're coming out of the pandemic and thinking about returning to the office. We know employees want flexibility and choice. You said it, too, 77%. But they're also concerned about career progression. And so now it's the time for leaders and managers to really figure out and start to role model what hybrid looks like for them so every employee feels included no matter where they are. You know, we alluded to the fact, uh, you know, that it could impact and negative, uh, negatively impact rather your career opportunities if you're remote working. Uh, what, what do you mean by this? Well, so, you know, I think what the, um, what the employees are concerned about is, you know, would somebody that's in the office have a better shot at career progression because they're physically there as opposed to somebody that's remote? And again, I don't think that needs to be the case, but leaders need to really step up here and define what work looks like for these organizations and what their employees need and what their experience needs to be. And in the definition of work, you might say, hey, these are the things that need to be done in the office. And those career discussions might be the things that we do in person. And then again, what's the work that we can do from home where you don't need to physically be there? It's such a, a mind shift, really. It's going to be for the near future because it really is, it's a different world and I don't suspect that anything is going to change anytime super quickly. Can we break down, Shannon, some of the numbers? How important is the hybrid work environment for Albertans? What kind of numbers did you find in the survey? Well, 64% of Alberta employees say their companies are planning to be hybrid or remote going forward. So I think that's pretty important. And again, you know, that tension that that we talked about, 46% of Albertan employees expect that in-person work, um, if they're physically there, gives them an employee uh, or gives them an opportunity uh, for career progression. So again, I, I get back to the fact that, you know, to your, to your point, a mind shift is so important. Mm-hmm. Leaders really need to start to lead by example. They need to define work. They need to leverage technology 
to really um, help employees feel included. And within your uh, numbers there, Shannon, it looks like, you know, more than, a, more than a handful of Albertans plan to return to the office, uh, but it just depends on when. Some at a shorter time frame, some a little longer than that. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm hearing, you know, again, January seems to be that magic moment. But I also want to make a point, too, Andy, that, you know, hybrid is not a one-size-fits-all. I think there's this misconception that hybrid means one thing. And again, I think it's really important to figure out, um, you know, what type of culture that you want to create within your organization. And again, what that looks like for your employees, because it's going to be different for every organization. Shannon, I see also in the numbers that Albertans attend the most meetings per day, uh, according to the workers across the country, which is very interesting. But while we're in those meetings, we're doing a lot of other stuff other than paying attention to work. Yeah, so really interesting stat, and this is a Canadian-wide stat. 82% of Canadian employees do not actively participate in the meetings that they attend. Um, And I think that's where, again, technology can really help level the playing field because the technology that's coming out right now gives you the opportunity to do translation and closed captioning and whiteboarding and polling. And then, again, leaders need to be intentional about do they have dedicated speaking times when they're on um, you know, on video calls or roundtable sessions. And again, this is where leaders really need to step in um, and kind of role model because, again, you want your employees paying attention. Shannon, it's interesting because maybe spending more time at home has highlighted the fact uh, that, you know, we need to pay attention to that work-life balance. What did the study find out about work-life balance and the wants of employees? Well, I think that's a really important point because we've seen over the pandemic that companies and organizations are still very productive, even though you've got a majority of employees working from home. I think the biggest concern becomes burnout and how do you address burnout. I know at Cisco, we spend a lot of time thinking about wellness and making sure that we're putting programs and practices into place that, that focuses on employees' well-being. And I think that needs to be part of the conversation and part of the practice. I want to ask you this, Shannon, because it seems to me there's opportunities out there, and you might even find more opportunities if you can do your job from home, if your skill set allows you to do so. To a certain extent, could it be a case that now more than ever, the employees are in the driver's seat and the employers mm-hmm. really have to keep their workforce happy and uh, content to keep them? Andy, I think that is such a true statement. And again, this is why I think organizations really need to pay attention to what their employees need and what their employee experience um, is going to be like moving forward because you're right, employees now have a choice. And if we don't figure out a way to work through this hybrid work model, they could leave the companies. You know, they could leave the organizations. They do have more of a choice now. And again, they're demanding things to be different moving forward. It's going to be an ongoing conversation. Thank you for joining us to talk about it. Appreciate your time this morning, Shannon. My pleasure. Shannon Leiniger is the president of Cisco Canada. So curious then, uh, for the folks who are working from home these days, is that something that you want moving forward? I've talked to a lot of people who are, and they miss the social aspect of things, so wouldn't mind a day or two in the office, but really have decided that they can work just fine from home. It's more cost efficient. It's more time efficient. I think there are really great options, you know, if companies just sort of look and think outside the box for how to keep your employees happy. Well, and how many people thought, you know, there's no way I would want to do my job at home. Maybe there's no way I can do my job at home. 
and they would have not considered that. Maybe if this was a few years ago and they said, here's an option, who wants to work from home or who wants to work from home part-time, may not have chosen that. But the pandemic, it's one of those Changes unintended consequences. Yeah. Yeah. And, and here's the thing, you don't know until you know. And maybe you say, this is great. I can drop my kids off at school. I'm finishing. And, and I think the, the proof would be in the pudding in, in the sense that, you know, if you're ticking off all the boxes and you've got your work and your responsibility done, then, yeah, you've got a pass. You can do this. Mm-hmm. If that's done and you can also maybe get out and have your dentist appointment and then run back home and, you know, and get your work oh, done. If you live deep south or deep north, yeah. like when we, we've spent some time down in Legacy and Mahogany, my wife and I, when we drive down there and I look at the downtown core and it seems like a different city so far away. If previously it took you on a winter day, maybe 45 minutes to get to the office one way, there's 90 minutes that you could be using More in your productive, home. right. So, yeah. I mean, it, it's an interesting time. And, uh, well, I'd be interested to know maybe if any of our listeners had never worked from home at all and have had that taste and, and if it's changed your view, if that's something you want to continue moving forward. I'm also curious is what she touched on at the beginning there. Do you feel like when you're not at the office, you're, you're maybe not seen as much That's by it, yeah, your I was boss wondering and, what she meant, and yeah. maybe passed over for other people who might be at the office. I would think that's a bit of a concern. It shouldn't be, but I would think that it probably might be for a lot of employees. Breast Cancer Awareness Month is coming to a close, but that certainly doesn't mean we should stop reminding people to be vigilant about the disease. Joining us to talk about the ongoing battle against breast cancer is survivor and advocate Joelle Marr. Good morning, Joelle. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Sue. Hi, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me on today. Okay, let's start off with a little bit about your personal battle before we talk about your message, Joelle. Um, well, um, I actually, um, what, what kind of makes my, my story a little bit unique was that I was being monitored. And um, I was having um, mammograms and ultrasounds every six months because my grandmother and my mother both have um my, my grandmother had breast cancer and my, grand, my mother had a breast-related uh, female cancer. And so I was being monitored every six months. And so in January of 2019, I had a clear mammogram and a clear ultrasound. And then six months later, um, I noticed a pain in my right breast and um, did a breast exam. And um, it was um, a mass almost the size of a ping pong ball. So um, we went in and had an, another ultrasound and a very scary, um, and a mammogram and uh, um, then a biopsy. And it was determined that even after six months, um, I had um, three malignant tumors in my breast and three lymph nodes were presenting um, cancer. Wow. So I was stage three, grade three, um, triple positive. So estrogen, progesterone, and HER2 receptors. So my cancer was extremely aggressive. So I started chemo within a week of my diagnosis. Wow. Let's, mm-hmm. let's talk about we can read stories, we can hear stories on paper, but to have somebody like yourself, Joel, Joel thank you for taking the time. Um, what goes through your mind the second you hear this? Like you were sitting in the office and, and you hear this. What, what exactly happens in your head at that point? Yeah, well, you know, Andrew, um, my husband was there with me, and my husband was more, I think the husband, my husband and my doctor were more emotional about it, and I was just, I just went into planning mode. I'm like, okay, now what do I do? What do I have to, like, who do we have to tell? What do we have to, I, what do I do with work? You know, what's this going to mean? Um, you know, so I was in, um, um, like, my brain just immediately went into a mode of this is this, because... You know, we had um, seven days before diagnosis, so we in between the biopsy and 
time to getting think. the results. So you have time to think. Um, unfortunately, I had time to get onto the internet too. So um, I had like, and that's a slippery slope too. Mm-hmm. So I don't re- recommend that until somebody gets somebody gets a diagnosis too, right? Because that is that is a vortex that one can go down. That's like a scary one too. But I mean, all things go through your mind. You know, it's it's like you're in a horror movie, mm-hmm. and like <laughs> everybody is speaking a different language and. <laughs> yeah, so it's you have to you have to definitely learn the landscape. Um, you know, you've got a team of players, and uh, then you just go. And your cheerleaders for sure, super Absolutely. important. I know. I know your big message is that we must be our own advocate, and this is for women, and this is for men. So how Absolutely do we do too. that? How do we do it? Well, you know, um, I think women and men, even though you know they're like they may not be at the at the age that they are are able to get mammograms um, or ultrasounds, but you know, you I think the big thing is is knowing your body. Um, you know, I was slowing down. Um, I was feeling extreme fatigue, and I just thought it was you know starting a new job and you know just yep. getting older and but you know what no it was it was cancer and so i think knowing your own body and really um advocating for yourself so if you see something's different or if you notice something's different go to your doctor and if your doctor doesn't help you out go to another doctor go somewhere and you know keep 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 you know fighting the fight until you get some answers because, you know, I, I, and even in my treatment, um, I had an excellent team, but, you know, I didn't, I did enough research myself um, in that um, I knew what trial drugs were available to me. And so I actually was fortunate enough to be um, on a trial that is now standard of care. Um, it's TDM1 and it's a Herceptin drug with an estimine, so a chemo. So very pleased that um, I was in that trial. And again, that is now standard of care for women who are triple positive. And currently I'm on a clinical trial. And um, interestingly enough, that clinical trial, I, I found out about the drug through a blogger mm. who was blogging about cancer um, from South Carolina. And she was on this drug um, after um, she finished her septin and TDM1. So um, that is that was standard of care in the U.S. and it wasn't in Canada. Now the drug I'm currently on has just been approved by Health Canada, and I did qualify for the clinical trial. So myself and a handful of women are on that uh, in that trial right now. Good, good. Joelle, thank you so much for your time and sharing your personal story with us this morning. We appreciate it. Well, thank you, and I hope that you know maybe this resonates with somebody mm-hmm. and that you know they continue to do breast exams, both men and women. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. Take care. That is Joelle Marr, breast cancer warrior and survivor. It is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.